Our second reading from God's Word this morning is from the book of Esther. So reading from 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes to him to put on instead of his sackcloth but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther, and to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Praise be to God for his word. Thanks, Russell. We're just having some um, issues. We, we haven't uh, with our, our microphone, so I'll have to preach down here today instead of up at the pulpit. So uh, thanks for your patience and for uh, bearing with us on that. Uh, I'm going to pray as we make a start, so please pray with me. 
Lord, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. We thank you that you, the maker of the universe, might speak to us, your creation. That you might reveal yourself to us, your servants. And so we thank you for your word and we ask that it might always be a food for our soul and a light for our feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder whether you've ever been in a battle that felt like you just couldn't win. I wonder whether you've ever competed against someone at something and it just felt like no matter what you did, you couldn't beat them. Uh, for me, I vividly remember a time where this happened. So I played quite a lot of um, local football, so I played 10 years of football. I played against some uh, amazing quality players. But one guy I played against was a former AFL player. And so he's quite a famous um, player. And so this is who he was. I don't know if you know this guy. He's Lance Whitnell. And so I'll just tell you a little bit about uh, Lance Whitnell. So he played over 200 games of AFL. He kicked almost 350 goals in AFL. He captained Carlton. In one year, he was in the All-Australian team. So that is, he was one of the best players in the year for that year. So he was a, he was a good quality footballer. But I played against him a little bit after his AFL time, and he'd let him, it's fair to say he'd let himself go a little bit. So this is what he looked like at the time. And so you can see he's, like, he's put on a bit of weight. He doesn't look that impressive. And so when I found out that's who we're playing against, and when I saw what he was like, I thought, OK, we've got a chance. We can beat him. He looks old, and he looks slow, and he looks overweight. So we'll be fine. But do you know what happened? Well, one, he's so unbelievably wide that you just can't get around him. And so when you're behind him, you just can't spoil the ball that's in front of him. And then uh, on top of that, he's got great hands. And so he could just mark anything that went near him. And so what happened? Basically, he would start in the goal square. When his team won, the, his midfielders won the ball, he'd just lead in a straight line out, mark the ball, kind of casually walk back, kick the goal then just walked to goal square again. And he just did that all day, time and time again. And do you know how many goals he kicked for the day? He kicked seven to half time when he went off because they were winning too easily. And so there was just nothing we could do. He was just too big, too strong, too powerful, too good. It was just impossible to beat him. And I wonder whether you've ever experienced a similar thing where you went up against someone or something and you just couldn't beat them. Maybe it was in your studies. You wanted to beat someone in the class, and no matter how hard you studied, they always did better. Or maybe it was in a job interview. You desperately wanted that job, but you just couldn't beat the charisma and the experience of the person you're going up against. Or maybe it was a loved one when they were facing sickness or death. They got that diagnosis, and they fought hard against whatever sickness or illness it was. But in the end, they just couldn't beat it. Death, death's tired washed over them. I wonder whether you can think of times where you've been up against an enemy, up against someone or something that you just couldn't beat. And what we see in Esther 3 to 4 is that we're all up against an enemy, that we just have no hope of beating an enemy far greater than any of those other enemies. An enemy far greater than a former AFL player, an enemy far greater than a straight A student, an enemy even greater than death. Because what death does is it steals away our physical life. But what this enemy wants to do is steal away our spiritual life. See, what Esther 3 and 4 shows us is that this world is a battlefield. Even though it might not feel like it, we are actually at war. And this enemy that we're at war against is an enemy we have no hope of beating 
but the wonderful thing about it is that even though we're up against an enemy that we have no chance of beating, we have a mediator, someone on our behalf who will fight for us and who wins for us. And so in Esther 3 and 4, we see the hatred of God's enemy, but we also see the wonderful hope of God's mediator. And so it starts off with God's enemy. He's a man called Haman, and he's this guy who has such a deep hatred for the people of God. Now, Haman's the, one of the top advisors to the king, and so what that means is that everyone has to bow down to him. Wherever he goes, people have to bow down to him. I mean, we know what that's like. You show respect to those who are in authority, those who are above you. That's why I'm always so respectful to John, because he's above me. That's what we do. And so everyone had to bow down to this guy to show respect. But of course, there's more to it. And we see the, uh, one of the Jewish guys, Mordecai, doesn't bow down to him. And we might be wondering why this is, but I think it's tied with his ethnicity. Did you see what Haman's ethnicity is? He's an Agagite. It's a funny word, but he's an Agagite, which means he's a descendant of the Amalekites. Uh, just for a little bit of uh, background on who they are. So we hear about them in the Old Testament. And in 1 Samuel 15, God's people are commanded to completely wipe out the Amalekites. But they don't. They spare some of them. And so now what we see going on here is that their disobedience hundreds of years earlier is coming back to bite them. And what we see is there's this deep ethnic tension, this deep underlying hatred. They hate each other. The Jews, God's people, and the Amalekites hate each other. And this hatred is centuries old. It's an old, ancient hatred. But what it shows us is that the enemy of God's people, the hatred of God's enemy, this is not a new thing. In fact, it's an ancient thing, an old thing that goes back right to the start of time. And so Mordecai refuses to bow down to this enemy of God. And how does Haman respond to that? Well, he's enraged, he's furious. How dare anyone not bow down to him? His eyes are popping out of his head. There's veins on his head and neck. Have a look at verse 6. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea. Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. See how angry he is, how much hatred he's filled with. And what he decides to do, rather than just kill Mordecai, he decides he'll kill all of Mordecai's people. It seems like a bit of an overreaction to think that because one man won't bow down to him. But when we understand that this is a centuries-old hatred, that this is a hatred that goes back so far, it makes sense. This is not just one man against one man. This is the enemy of God's people clashing with God's people, clashing with God. And this clash is as ancient as time. This clash is centuries old. And it won't stop until God's people are completely destroyed and annihilated. And so, as we see what Haman's plan is, we see that this hatred is also quite cunning. Uh, Haman starts off by casting the purr, so that's just like a dice, and he casts it to see when he's going to actually try and eliminate them. Uh, the date that comes up is a date in 11 months, in 11 months' time, so it's quite a decent distance away, almost a year away, and so he's got time to cunningly work on this plan. From there, did you see what he does? He goes before the king and tries to convince him. Have a look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, 
There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all the other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. See how cunning this is? See how sneaky it is? It's just outright false. He tells the king, these people are different and then it's not in your best interest to keep them around. When in fact, we know for a fact that's not true. Because just the chapter before, Mordecai, one of God's people, one of the Jews, saved the king's lives, life. So we know this is not true. But yet, what does he do? He cunningly makes it seem like to the king that these guys are bad news, that they're bad to have around. And so the king thinks, yeah, this is no good. Maybe I'll need to get rid of them. And then see what else he does? He offers up money. He says, I'm even willing to pay for it. I'm even willing to pay 10,000 talents of silver. Now, that might seem like it's quite an abstract amount. We kind of don't have any understanding how much that is. So I looked into it and it's actually 60% of the annual tax income of the Persian Empire. That's how much he's willing to give. So for context, in Australia, our, loosely our, tax, our annual tax revenue income is $500 billion which means the amount he's willing to give is 60% of that, so loosely $300 billion. That's what he's offering to the king. That's what he's saying. I'll pay this if you eliminate these people. It's a staggering amount of money. It's so cunning, though. He knows that how can the king say no to this? How can the king say no to so much money? This is all part of his cunning plan. He's carefully thought it out, and he's determined to destroy God's people. And it works. Did you see how the king responds? He's won over. He says, yeah, we'll do that, Haman. We will eliminate them. And even more, he's so won over that he says, keep your money. You don't need to give the money. The enemy of God's people has succeeded. And I mean, it's so clear here that he's God's enemy. Because did you see how he's described? In verse 10, he's not just an Agagite. He's an Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. It's so clear. This is God's enemy. But perhaps worst of all, did you see how callous this plan is? How callous this hatred is? Verses 12 to 15, a royal edict is made and it's sent out in all the, in all the languages of the nations. And did you see how horrific it is? Verse 13, have a look. Dispatches were sent by Carus to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. It's chilling in its callousness. No one's to be spared. Young and old, women and children, all are to be slaughtered, completely annihilated. There's no mercy. It's just so callous. And this is what God's enemy is like. This hatred of God's enemy is so callous. It doesn't matter who it is, who that person of God is. They will wipe them out. It brings such hatred and death and destruction. And what perhaps makes it even more chilling above everything is, did you see how um, Haman and the king respond? What they do once this edict's been sent out? Have a look at verse 15. Spurred on by the king's command... The couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. 
I mean, how incredible is that? They've just issued an edict to slaughter hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps millions of people. And yet what do they do? They sit down for a glass of wine. They sit down and they drink together. They celebrate together. It's so callous. It's so chilling that that would be their response to the annihilation of so many people. And understandably, the city's bewildered. Susa can't understand what's going on. Why has this happened? What could possibly make them deserve such a fate? They're bewildered, but this enemy doesn't care. He's so callous. And of course, this is what God's enemies like today, isn't it? Now, uh, God's enemy today isn't Haman, a man who died millennia ago. But of course, the enemy is the one who is behind Haman, the one who, out, who throughout all of history has been working for the destruction of God's people. This is the devil. This is the enemy who whispered in God's people's ear in the Garden of Eden, causing them to doubt God's goodness and question his plans. This is the enemy who stirred up God's people when Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments who spurred them up and caused them to rebel against God, to make false idols. This is the enemy who time and time again led God's people astray right throughout the Old Testament, causing them to turn their backs on God. This is the enemy who filled the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with jealousy towards Jesus, who whipped up the crowd into a frenzy, who helped Pilate to decide unjustly, also that Jesus would be crucified. This is the enemy. This is the enemy who continues like this today. The enemy who stirs up envy in our hearts when we look at our friends and what they have and makes us wish it was ours. This is the enemy who awakens bitterness in our hearts at a broken relationship so that we cherish and nurse our hurt feelings. This is the enemy who whispers in our ears little doubts causing us to question who God is and what God's done. This is the enemy who steals away our satisfaction with our husbands and wife or husband or wife causing us to look at others. This is the enemy who makes us doubt who God is and what God's done. This is the true enemy, the enemy that was at work then and the enemy who's still at work today. The devil, the enemy who won't stop until he sees all of God's people destroyed. See, what Esther 3 and 4 reminds us is that there's a spiritual war going on, a spiritual battle going on. The devil is at work for the destruction of God's people. This is the enemy that we're up against, an enemy that's far greater than we are, that's far more powerful than we are, an enemy that if left to ourselves, we couldn't possibly hope to defeat. But as the story continues on, we see that even though it's so hopeless for us, if we were left to ourselves, we're so hopeless. Even though that's the case, God has sent a mediator to save us. Because as the story unfolds, Mordecai hears what's to happen to God's people. And understandably, he's shocked and he's, um, he's quite upset about this. He starts weeping and wailing. He puts on sackcloth. He's distraught. He knows that in just 11 months' time, he and all of God's people will be destroyed. And God's people, of course, when they hear, they weep and they wail. They're distraught as well. The situation is so hopeless. They're so helpless. Or at least they would be if they were on their own. But they're not because God's given them a mediator, someone to come before the king, someone to intercede before the king 
to spare their lives. God's given them Esther. And what we see about Esther, well, the first thing we see about it is that she's compassionate. See, Esther's off in the palace and she doesn't hear what's happening, happened to, or what the edict is for God's people. But she does hear that Mordecai's distraught. And so she has compassion. She wonders and she wants to know why it is that's, that Mordecai's so upset. And so she sends a servant to find out and Mordecai tells the servant, he tells the servant everything, including the amount of money that um, Haman's promised. And he gives um, the servant an ed- a copy of the edict to give to her. Did you see what he then urges her to do? Have a look at verse 8. He also gave the servant a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to urge Esther to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. He urges her, go to the king, talk to the king. Plead with their king for the salvation of God's people. But of course, it's not quite as simple as that, is it? Because Esther says, to go before the king without being asked is death. To go before the king, unless he has invited her in, is certain death. It's a dangerous thing to go before the king. But that's what Mordecai is urging her to do. He's saying, you need to take your life in your hands and go before this king. And so we're left wondering, it's in this kind of precarious position, what will happen? What will Mordecai say to her then to convince her? Have a look at verse 12 to 13. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. He warns her, don't think that you're safe just because you're in God's in the king's palace, that you will escape, that you'll be spared. God's enemy is so intent on the destruction of his people that he'll hunt them down no matter where they are, including in the palace. He says, even though she might be scared because it's death to approach the king, it's death not to approach the king. And so either way, she's facing death. But what's particularly amazing is the next bit. Because did you see what he says in verse 14? Have a look. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. It's this wonderful display of trust. He says deliverance will come no matter what. God will save his people, either by you or by someone else. So what we see is that Mordecai knows who God is. He knows God's character and he knows of the promises that God's given. He knows of the covenant promises that God gave to Abraham and then repeated to Isaac and to Jacob, promises that said God's people will be more numerous than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. He knows of God's promises to his people. And he knows of God's actions that have aligned with that, of the countless times that God has saved his people, of the way God saved his people from from slavery in Egypt, from the way God saved his people from starving in the desert by giving food from heaven of the way God parted the sea so God's people could escape, of the way God stopped the sun in the sky so that God's army might defeat his enemies. See, he knows of all these wonderful times that God has delivered his people, that has saved his people. And he says, no matter what, deliverance will come. But Esther, if not by you, then by someone else. 
But he says, if not by you, then you will perish. You will die. And so he gives her this stark warning. But he also gives her wonderful encouragement. Have a look at verse 14 again. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. See, Mordecai knows that God will deliver his people, but he doesn't know how. And so he says to Esther, perhaps this is why you've been put there. Perhaps this is why you're in this position. He says, perhaps it wasn't all just a coincidence. All along, all these things that have happened so far, perhaps they weren't just a coincidence. Perhaps it wasn't just a coincidence that Vashti said no to come and see the king in chapter 1. Perhaps it wasn't just a coincidence then that he, elim- he got rid of her as his queen. Perhaps it wasn't just a coincidence that he then decided to hold a beauty pageant and that Esther was selected to attend and that Esther won. Perhaps it all wasn't just a coincidence. Perhaps God has put you in this position for this moment. Perhaps you've been put in this moment so that you can mediate and you can save God's people. This is the hope that, that Mordecai gives to her and this is the hope that Esther brings. But of course, when we read this verse, I think there's a danger that we misinterpret it. I think there's a danger that we think wherever we are in life, God must have put us there. Now, in one sense, that's possibly true. The Bible does talk in Romans 8 that everything, every position we're in, everything we're doing, God's using it. But there's a danger, I think, to think that God must have put me here for my own good, for my own career or for my own relationships or for my own whatever. But I don't think that's what's happening with Esther. Because why does Mordecai say Esther's been put here? Well, it's for the salvation of God's people. It's for the building of God's kingdom. It's for God working out his purposes. And so I think there's a temptation that we apply this across to ourselves in a way that it's not meant to be applied. So it's not that God's put us in our positions wherever we are in life for our own good, but rather that he's put us there for the building of his kingdom, for the spreading of his gospel. And so that's what we're meant to think when we think, why am I where I am? It's so that we can build God's kingdom. Well, how does Esther respond then? How does she respond to this incredible um, reminder and display of faith? Well, she responds with great courage and great commitment. She says, I'll do it. I'll go and I'll face death for the sake of God's people. And so she wants everyone to fast for her, that is, humble themselves before God. And she and her maids will fast, that is, humble themselves before God. And once that's done, she'll go to the king. And that all then culminates in this wonderful kind of um, trust-filled words. She says, if I perish, I perish. Have a look at verses 15 to 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the people, all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. How wonderful is that? She says, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. She's willing to do whatever it takes to save God's people. That's such a wonderful display of courage and commitment. Such a wonderful show of dependence upon God. God's mediator brings hope even in the face of death, even in the face of such unrivaled hatred. 
But of course, when we look at Esther, we remember she's merely a shadow of the wonderful mediator who's to come. Because while Esther is God's mediator who brings hope, there's a greater mediator who brings an even greater hope. Who is that greater mediator? Oh, it's Jesus. Because think about the wonderful parallels there are between Jesus and between Esther. Esther went into a place of great power and great judgment on behalf of her people. Jesus went into a place of even greater power, of even greater judgment on behalf of his people. Esther went there to plead for her people. Jesus went there to plead for his people. Esther faced the possibility of death for the sake of her people. Jesus faced the certainty of death for the sake of his people. There's so many similarities between them. But of course, there's also so many differences between them. Because Esther hesitated, yet Jesus never wavered. Esther cared about her own well-being, at least at first. But Jesus always put his people's well-being above his own. Esther saved her people from physical death, but Jesus saved his people from spiritual death. See, Jesus and Esther, they're so similar, but in so many ways so different, because Jesus is so much greater, so much better, so much more hope-filled. Jesus went and faced death. He mediated on behalf of his people so that anyone who trusts in him might be spared, might be saved. It's the wonderful hope of this great mediator. And so that's what Esther 3 and 4 shows us. It shows us that even though there's this powerful enemy of God who seeks the destruction of God's people, there's an even greater mediator who comes and who defeats that enemy, who saves God's people. And so then, what are we meant to take from that? What are we meant to take from Esther 3 and 4? I think two things. So firstly, beware the enemy. See, just like Haman, our enemy, the devil, desires nothing more than the complete and utter destruction of God's people. He he desires nothing more than us being destroyed. And he'll do whatever he can to achieve that. And so that's what he'll do. He'll come to us when we've just lost our temper, our family, and he'll whisper in our ears, they deserved it. It's their own fault. He'll come to us when we've stumbled yet again and looked at porn and he'll whisper in our ears, that's one time too many. God could never forgive you now. He'll come to us when we've been hurt by people at church and he'll whisper in our ears, don't go back there, they don't love you. He'll come to us when we're feeling lonely and forgotten and he'll whisper in our ears, they don't care about you, no one cares about you, you're insignificant. He'll come to us when we're feeling good and he'll whisper in our ears, you don't need God, you're good enough yourself. This is what the devil does. He seeks nothing more than our complete destruction. I think it's captured well in a book by C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but the Screwtape Letters. And so this is a a fictional book. So uh, what he does is he um, pretends to write letters from a senior demon to a junior demon. And so quite a comical book, quite an enjoyable book. But what it does is captures the many, many subtle ways that the devil works. The many subtle things that the devil uses. And there's this great book at the start as he's kind of giving a bit of a warning or introduction about the book. And he says, readers are advised that the devil is a liar. That's what the devil does. He distorts truth, he twists truth, and he changes truth. All so that he might try and destroy God's people. 
And so we need to beware. We need to beware of the devil because he is dangerous. But of course, we don't need to lose heart because we have a mediator. As far more powerful as the devil is to us, our mediator is that much and more, more powerful than the devil. See, even though us against the devil, we have no hope of winning. We have no chance of beating this enemy. The devil has no chance, no hope of beating our mediator. See, this is not a battle between two equals. It's not even a battle that's close. This is as one-sided a fight as it comes. Our mediator is so much more powerful than the devil. And so we don't, even though we beware, even though we're careful, we don't lose heart. We trust that our mediator is so powerful. Our mediator has won victory for us, his people. And so, when we've lost our temper and we've uh, snapped at our family and the enemy is there whispering in our ear, they deserved it. We don't listen to him. We instead trust our mediator. We trust what he said. When we've stumbled and yet again looked at porn and he comes and he's there and he's whispering in our ear, that's one time too many. God can't forgive you now. What do we do? Well, we trust our mediator that he says no. His death is sufficient for our forgiveness. When we're feeling hurt by people at church and we don't want to go back there and the devil's whispering in our ear, don't return, they don't care about you. What do we do? Well, we don't listen to him, we trust our mediator that says that he loves us and because of that, his people do. See, despite the fact that the devil is there and he seeks nothing more than our destruction, we have a mediator who's so much more powerful than he is, who's so much greater than he is. And so we beware the enemy, but we trust our mediator. This is the hope of Esther, the hope of a mediator. See, though we face an enemy far greater than us, we have a mediator so much greater than that. I'm going to pray. Uh, please pray with me.